This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Crust, crust, crust. Again? Tradition. 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 Oh. It's too early in the morning and that, that part of my brain's not working yet. Oh yeah, what time is it? Uh, it is 8.14. Oh, you're fine. I should be <laughs> fine, but you know... I haven't had to be getting up early lately, so, <laughs> you know, I haven't been. Anyway, is that really going to be our intro, or should we actually do one? Doesn't matter. So this is Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. I am Andrew Smith, a pastoral intern at Redeemer URC in Anchorage, Alaska. And I'm Caleb Castro, going into my fourth and last year of seminary studies at Mid-America, currently serving on summer assignment at Trinity United Reformed Church in Visalia, California. So last year of seminary, how does that feel? Feels good, Andrew. You know, uh, I feel like uh, there's been a lot of stuff and a lot of things and, uh, you know, those things and stuff uh, have been good, you know? Gotcha. Well, I'm glad that your things and stuff are going well. Tell us about uh, your stuff and things. Yeah, so I already graduated seminary because, no, that was always the plan to do it in three years. And I'm about to do my candidacy exam for the United Reformed Churches. That'll be coming up here in early September. Dun, dun, dun. Returning to California for a brief interval to do that. And then I am interning here in Anchorage, Alaska, and we'll see what happens. So with your uh, candidacy exams coming up, you're saying to our listeners that now is the time to uh, object and uh, make sure that never happens? Sure, yeah. <laughs> Show up and protest, form a picket line, you know, things like that. What are the grounds for your objection? Uh, his jokes aren't funny. I've heard his podcast. I mean, I never said they were. <laughs> you never joke. It's true. I am just serious all the time. I know. Could object on the basis of my beard. It's getting rather out of hand. I guess when in Alaska, do Alaska things. No, I mean, people might start mistaking you for a uh, Reformed Baptist. Oof. You're not careful. Okay, I gotta, gotta deal with that. <laughs> So speaking of Baptists, covenant theology. Yeah, actually, before we do that. So today is also a big day in Bovink history. It was exactly 100 years ago from the day we're recording this uh, that Herman Bovink died, that he entered into eternal rest. Yeah, and you know, it's really only in relatively recent history that Bovink's works had caught on, you know, to the bulk of us and started to be studied, uh, largely in part to the translation of Reformed Dogmatics from uh, John Bolt and company. There's still a lot left to be put out, and 100 years seems like a long time, but in the uh, course of things, it's really not, and I feel like uh, work on him is just really getting started, you know? Yeah, and I think also, though, it shows the durability and the timelessness of his work that a hundred years later, I mean, 
it's only now finding its way into English, but it still seems as relevant and uh, useful and helpful as ever. Yeah, and they're likely, you know, I, I think you've said before, uh, simply just as dogmatics are perhaps the greatest and most comprehensive reform dogmatics that we have in the English language to this point. Yeah, but no, I think it certainly at least has to be up there and in the conversation for the impact it's had and for the impact it continues to have and also just the quality of the work. And because it's such a high quality work, we'll be looking to it and others today as we continue in covenant theology and turn to... A covenant known by many names, but most commonly known as the Covenant of Works. The covenant made with Adam before the fall. Yeah, so covenant. What's with it? We earlier had, in our previous episodes, given a kind of an overview of covenant theology, if you listened to those episodes. And in that overview, we gave some general definitions, kind of doing a little survey and comparison of how a covenant is considered. There's some extent of disagreement on how to properly uh, speak of it. We mentioned that a a really helpful one uh, and concise comes from uh, Ligon Duncan, that he speaks of divine covenant as a God-initiated, binding, living relationship with blessings and obligations. And likewise from uh, Richard Belcher, covenant refers to a legal agreement between two parties that is ratified by certain rituals that emphasize the binding nature of the agreement. The phrase in the Old Testament that is used to establish a covenant is to cut a covenant. The phrase highlights the rituals of sacrifices and oaths that are at the heart of establishing a covenant. These are covenants between human parties who are equal, between human parties who are not equal, and between God and humans. And I repeat that here as kind of a a groundwork to keep in mind then of some key elements that we find important in trying to figure out what is going on in the Garden of Eden. And obviously how you define covenant is going to affect what you think about the covenant going on in the Garden of Eden. We'll get back to this a little later, but for instance, you have those like John Murray, who for him a definition of a covenant necessarily is gracious, and that affects how he sees the covenant, or in this case, not a covenant in Eden, where someone like Meredith Quine swings the other way, emphasizes the legal aspect of covenant, and that works out in how he sees the covenant with Adam. So that's why the definitions are important, and for our detailed treatment, you can go back to our introductory material on covenant theology. But just know that... These definitions have consequences and they work out in how one handles their system of covenant theology. Yeah, so we have a couple names for this covenant to begin with. It's important to say that, you know, the covenant of works hasn't exactly been agreed upon even in covenant theology itself, that there are objections in various pockets of our tradition. You know, some will altogether say that there is no covenant of works and that There is a strong continuity in God's work in relation to Adam continuing on post-fall. You'd call this like a mono or single covenant theology. This could be held by Norman Shepard. Elements of it could be considered in uh, Klaus Gilder, who speaks of distinguishing between pre-fall and post-fall phases of the covenant. 
But a lot of this depends on how one views the covenant parties. So, Andrew, what are some other names that have been used in describing this relationship? So, like I said, the most common name is the covenant of works. This is, of course, the language that's used in the Westminster standards. So, at least is enshrined at the confessional level for our Presbyterian friends. But other names that have been applied to it include the covenant of life. Uh, because then the focus shifts to basically what is the telos, what is the end of this covenant, which for Adam, it would have been eternal life. Others prefer a covenant of creation. So covenant of life because of the destination of the covenant or covenant of creation for when it occurs. Now, we're going to talk about that as we go along here, the relationship between this covenant and creation, because it ends up being also a controversial and a surprisingly important issue. But those are the three main names. I'm sure there's others, but the ones you would see the most would be covenant of works, covenant of life, covenant of creation. You could probably also see things like the Adamic Covenant or the Prelapsarian Covenant to denote its position before the fall. Right, and uh, I think Covenant of Life also is uh, spoken of as a covenant of nature in the same manner. You'll find these terms read throughout various earlier theologians, William Perkins, Francis Turretini, you know, and so on. Or Turretin, as those of us who speak the King's English call him. <laughs> yeah, well, he's, we want to honor the diversity here, Andrew, and uh, in, in recognizing that he is Italian. That's fair. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, so a covenant of nature, I mean, it's basically, as I said, there's a relationship with the concept of the covenant of life. But however, the focus is on how nature, by virtue of the image of God being put into Adam, that this covenant of nature has something of the light of the law, that this forms an aspect of a judicial legal relationship in Adam, in, in his obligations to God. However, there is the necessity of bringing out an emphasis that this relationship between God and man is not merely one of nature. The name could miss the emphasis on it being a special relationship, you know, in God, not only creating man as very good, unlike the rest of creation, which is simply good, but also uh, putting his own image into Adam, into man, and forming man by his own hand from the dust and breathing life into him. So you want to note just how there are certain emphases that get lost then in some of these names if we don't have basically the full picture in mind, that we need more than just a legal concept. Yeah, and the difficulty with these names is like, every one of these names captures some aspect of this covenant, of what's going on in the garden between God and Adam. And none of them quite captures it perfectly, and thus all of them have been opened at various points to criticism. So some don't like the idea of a covenant of works because that brings up issues over merit, over the idea of, is it really proper to say that Adam as a creature can earn eternal blessedness uh, strictly and properly in the way that merit has historically been understood. Covenant of creation gets at the relationship between the covenant and creation is the covenant baked into creation, if you will, when from the moment God breathes life into Adam, 
is he in covenant or is there some subsequent action? Right. And I'd like to add with a covenant for creation, this also is a question of do aspects of this initial pre-fall relationship continue after the exile from Eden? So do, for example, the effects of the fall and the cursings that in Adam's disobedience, do they continue on in some element after the fall and therefore can simply be called a covenant of creation? Does the covenant come back at some point? And we get into this more when we start to look at the Mosaic covenant, because it has been theorized by some that it does. As far as the covenant of life, this raises questions of what exactly were the terms of this covenant and what was the reward that was being held out to Adam had he completed the terms of it. There's a reason there's a lot of different names is there's a lot of different layers and nuances to this covenant that we have to explore to understand it properly. One of those first areas that we can explore for perhaps just a uh, starting point is then what is this covenant or administration's relationship to creation, Andrew? Right. And it's important to look at this. Because how you answer this question is going to affect a lot of things. It's going to affect not only how you understand what's going on in the garden, but what comes after, what comes after the fall and the expulsion. Historically, Reformed theology has been rather unified that covenant and creation are not the same act. They are close together. They're related. I mean, they both happen in similar time and place. But God creates Adam and then subsequently enters into covenant with him. This is the position that Bovink takes. I will read a quote from him from Reform Dogmatics, Volume 2, page 571. He says, The matter itself is certain. After creating men and women after his own image, so note the after, God showed them their destiny and the only way in which they could reach it. Human beings could know the moral law without special revelation since it was written in their hearts. So that's important to note also. The moral law is not inherent to covenant. The moral law was already there. But he goes on. But the probationary command is positive. It is not a given of human nature as such, but could only be made known to human beings if God communicated it to them. Nor was it self-evident that keeping that command would yield eternal life. So it wasn't just they were made and they knew from the moment of their making that they could keep the command for life. They had to be told. He continues, in that sense, the covenant of works is not a covenant of nature. Initially, the church did not yet clearly understand this, but gradually it became obvious and was taught as such that God was in no way obligated to grant heavenly blessedness and eternal life to those who kept his law and thereby did not do anything other than what they were obligated to do. There is no natural connection here, between work and reward. So, Caleb, Hi. what do we have going on here? What are the issues that Bovink's raising in this quote? I think there's several things that we can pinpoint that Bovink is talking about here. I mean, for one thing, this is clearly something that occurred early on in creation, that it's something that is a relationship 
that is in the beginning. You had mentioned already the covenant relationship is not intrinsic merely by God forming Adam or even merely by him forming the universe. There still must be something of a special revelation to occur. There has to be a direct act of God revealing himself and defining the essence of the relationship, the substance of the relationship with man. And so you have God revealing himself to Adam scripturally by speaking to Adam by his word and by his act. And it's in that act of telling Adam the essence of the relationship that you get the basis of those conditions. This is where you have God giving the command, the prohibition of eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and permitting continuing to eat of anything else in the garden. You have God giving basically Adam the limitations of what is acceptable in maintaining his relationship to God and what is forbidden. And then as well as then Adam's job, what Adam is to do. And you get this basically with the task of the cultural mandate, the mankind mission to fill the earth and subdue it. So God clearly defines to Adam so that Adam would know by a direct revelation what he was to do. And with that, God also then gives him the warrant, the effects of keeping the covenant of obeying or or disobeying, rather, which would be a continued multiplying and dominion over the earth or in dying the death of death in losing and breaking the natural order of relationship between man and God, which is a death of the physical person, which is a death of the tie between body and soul with the body's deterioration, and first and foremost, uh, most importantly, the relationship spiritually between God and man. This also takes us back to something more fundamental that we spent a lot of time talking about early on in the history of this show as we were working through Wonderful Works, which is the relationship between general and special revelation. By general revelation, someone can know the law. Someone can know that I am obligated, I am required to do what is good and to avoid what is evil. So, you know, we all know whether we've ever picked up and read the Bible or not, we know that it's wrong to murder, to steal, and so forth. That's not really in dispute, and that can come by general revelation. The issue is access to God directly, access to God on the terms which he has set, only comes by special revelation. So you have in creation general revelation. Adam is alive now and he knows certain things, but he can't have any hope of eternal blessedness without God revealing to him the terms by which that happens. And this isn't just something that comes up in Bavink. It's like I said, it's been widely held throughout the Reformed tradition. So just as example... Looking at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 12. What special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created? Answer, when God had created man, so note the past tense here, God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him. So interesting here, you see the Westminster also used covenant of life as well as covenant of works, upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. 
So you see there the Westminster Catechism treating it as a subsequent act. Another place this comes up is recently a new work was published, an old work by J. Gresham Machen called Things Unseen. It was his radio lectures on systematic theology. He appeals to Westminster Shorter Catechism 12, and he also treats it as a subsequent act. He asks, this is on page 255, But did God leave man alone after he had thus created him? No, he did not leave him alone. He entered into a covenant with him. That was, of course, only one thing he did with man. By his works of providence, he preserved and governed man and all his actions as he preserved and governed all his creatures. But the shorter catechism is right in singling out that formation of a covenant with man as a special act of providence that God exercised toward man in the estate wherein he was created. So... This isn't just Bavink. This is also, for instance, in the Presbyterian tradition has been historically the common position that this covenant is a subsequent act, an act of special revelation, a special dispensation that comes on top of the general knowledge that comes in creation. Yeah, and we can also point to uh, Heidelberg Catechism question answer six in a smaller and more implicit part. There, the question is asked, did God create man so wicked and perverse? And in this answer, we actually get something of the continental reformed version of the well-known Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer one, what is the chief end of man? Here at Heidelberg Catechism answer six, it says, God created man good and in his own image, that is in true righteousness and holiness. And then we get a purpose statement here, so that he might... Truly know God his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. And so we get this phrase of truly know God as creator. And like you had already said, to truly know God, God must reveal himself in a manner of special revelation. This creates a question of is special revelation only for post-fall gospel knowledge? Like you'd already said, Andrew, no. I mean, God has to reveal himself. And uh, a point that Bavink had made in that quote from volume two you read was that it eventually became accepted amongst the Reformed that God was in no way obligated to grant heavenly blessedness and eternal life to those who kept his law and thereby did not do anything other than what they were obligated to do. There is no natural connection between work and reward. And a point in saying this, along with Bavink, is that, and Machen had pointed out it as well, implicitly, God didn't just leave man to his own devices after creating him. If the covenant relationship was inherent simply by act of creating man and giving Adam his image, then there is not a need really for God to go and speak to Adam. Adam would already know his requirements and may just simply do so. But God is intentionally going and revealing himself. He's explaining the nature of the relationship when he speaks to Adam of what he may eat and not eat. There's also the implication that uh, this relationship doesn't just concern Adam and his wife, but also all of Adam's posterity in God speaking of the command to multiply and fulfill the earth. There is 
an implication that all of man must know who God is and that uh, Adam will be acting as a representative for the work that God is calling him to do. So in other words, the obligation is all on Adam to obey God, not an obligation on God to reward or curse Adam for what he does and doesn't do. As a matter of God's justice, he will do those things, but God did not need to actually reveal himself to Adam, yet he did. Right. There would have been nothing unjust had God created Adam in that natural state and left it at that. It is by God's voluntary divine condescension, as the Westminster Confession says in chapter 7, that he gives Adam more than simply that natural state and that hope of natural life. But also, too, as far as this issue of covenant and creation, it's not merely a theological construct that, you know, these smart guys have figured out. It is in accordance with the account of Scripture of creation. You have that God makes man in his image. In Genesis 1, there's creation and then God speaks. But as far as the details of the covenant, that becomes more apparent in chapter 2. So Genesis 2.15 and following, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So, you see, God has made man. Like, that's already done. And he puts him in the garden. And then in verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So you have creation already done, but then the terms of the covenant, the probationary term being laid out. The what Adam must do or what he must not do, uh, the terms by which he will live or which he will die. Another good way we could put it is, does Adam have the right to eternal life? simply as a matter of being created and given the image of God? Or in order to have the right to life, does he have to fulfill the conditions? Is God obligated to grant Adam then the right to eternal life simply by his act in creating Adam? I mean, if God wanted to do that, it seems that there would have been no point or no reason to create him and then impose these additional terms. Right. If God wanted to create Adam in eternal life, eternal blessedness in his presence, he could have simply done that. And that's not what happens here. There is this right. probationary test that comes subsequently to Adam's creation. Now, God did create Adam, as you said, quoting from the Heidelberg, so that he might live with God in eternal blessedness. But he didn't create him in that state. There was right. some intervening actions, activities, some more of history that was yet to unfold. Yeah, it becomes a, a matter of the covenant of works has this function of setting the statutes for eternal life, the, the conditions for those things to basically be, uh, if we're to use the phrase, merited to Adam. But these are not things that God is required to simply 
give to Adam. The other thing, though, we have to recognize, too, because this becomes an issue, for instance, in modern controversies is as far as the issue of merit and was Adam really earning eternal life? We have to recognize a disproportionality between the work and the reward. Had Adam, for a time, not eaten a fruit from a tree, his reward was eternal life and eternal blessedness. That's not proportionate. Just a simple not doing something for a short period of time isn't worthy of all of God's blessings. And yet... God would have recognized and accepted those obedience on his terms because those are the terms he created. So a lot is made, and I think we'll get back to this later, about what Adam really was accomplishing. But we need to recognize that what was held out to Adam as a reward was something greater than he had any inherent right to by who he was or what he was doing as created, as fulfilling, again, the rather simple terms of a covenant. Yeah, if Adam goes and does what is already required or should be uh, required of him, if God is his creator, he should be acting in accordance in all manners of ways that is in praise and adoration and service to his creator if adam goes and does the things that are required of him why does that necessitate a reward it doesn't no it doesn't it, he, he's merely doing what he's already obligated to do i'm just putting in other words what you've just said yeah. if you have an employee that you know simply just does what is already required of him he just does his duties that he was hired for is that a way to get promotion and recognition what does that matter to his employer how, how would we look at this from scripture andrew well, it's interesting that you frame it that way because it was also framed that way once by Jesus. In Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, Jesus uses a parable to describe this reality. He says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. So this talks about our inherent duty to God of obedience. So God created man good, able to keep the law with the law written on his heart, and man owed him from that moment his obedience. There was no reason, no basis for man to sin against God, even without God giving any further revelation. So if Adam's just going and doing then merely what is required of him, then for God to reward him for those things is not out of an obligation to God's nature or character, because certainly God is just, and we could say his justice means that he has to reward for goodness. But does he have to? No. He would out of his grace and mercy. Now, some might have issue with saying that God acts in grace towards Adam before the fall by entering into this relationship and holding out the conditions for eternal life to Adam. But we can speak of this grace if we're understanding this in terms of 
non-gospel grace. It's not gospel grace. Is grace only salvific? No. Grace is also love and mercy. I think God takes pity and deals mercifully with simply what is just dust and a created element. If we consider God as eternal uh, in all of his attributes, I think we can maintain that he is eternally merciful and he has not changed between pre-fall and post-fall in that manner. Put another way, does grace only exist because of sin? And in a situation where sin exists, some have said, yes, there is only grace after the fall because there's only grace because of sin. Grace defined generally, it's unmerited favor. It's grace that basically God giving us anything that we don't truly properly deserve. Adam didn't do anything and would not have done anything even if he had fulfilled the covenant terms that truly and properly deserved eternal blessedness. He would have been an unworthy servant who had done what was required of him, but God showed unmerited favor. Again, to use that Westminster Confession term, voluntary divine condescension, that if you do this, I will reward you with this. So, in a sense, in that properly qualified sense, there is grace going before the fall. This is truly a legal relationship. There are legal aspects of this relationship, very important ones, that should not be ignored. But it's also a loving relationship. Right, a relationship of favor. A relationship where God is doing something not because he has to, because God cannot be obligated to his creatures unless he obligates himself, but where God, out of his goodness, out of his love, decides to give man something of which he is not inherently worthy upon fulfillment of a certain terms. Is that not really consistent with who God is? We note very much the distinctions and difference between pre-fall and post-fall in the way God relates with man because of the entering of sin into the world and the effects of the curse. But, you know, God is the same yesterday, today, uh, you know, now and forever. He doesn't have to relate or deal with man pre-fall or post-fall in any manner of favor. But he does, and particularly because of Jesus Christ. Right. There would have been nothing deficient in God's justice had Adam, after Adam fallen, God had left him in that state to perish. But because God has covenanted with himself, think back to what we talked about in the covenant of redemption, to redeem a people for his name, then comes the covenant of grace. There is the making of another covenant after this covenant is broken. We will get to that in subsequent episodes, the covenant of grace. Bobcast. We're not quite done with looking at the covenant of works just yet. We'll be back next time with more. But for now, we're going to sign off. We hope you've enjoyed this Bobcast. We hope you've learned something. And we hope you'll join us again. So until next time, Toad Zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.